welcome to the third episode of the Road to Open Science podcast. My name is Lieven Heremans. I'm Sanli Faes. Sanli, what's our topic today? We are going to talk to two researchers who have started open access publishing platforms. Right, because it seems like no matter who we talk to, open access publishing is always the main topic in open science, right? That's true. Publications are the main currency in academic system. No matter what you want to do, you need publications uh, to get grants, to get promotions, to look for job opportunities. And at the moment, we have so many publications and the publishing system has become so big that has uh, come out of the academic sphere into the hands of big corporations. And... uh, we sort of have lost controls, who controls the publishing system. Right, and I also noticed that not every publication is worth the same. That's right, we have about a million academic uh, papers produced every year. It's known that many of them are not read except for by the people who review them. And among these million, it's a very big task to filter out the, the outstanding publications, otherwise, people cannot just catch up. Right, and these top-ranking journals, or the high-impact, they also favor newsworthy or hot-topic publications, right? That's true, and academics mostly are not happy about this. We should also not forget the cost that the publishing system is putting on universities. Can you give an indication? Well, it's difficult because many of these contracts are not open, but from estimates, I guess every university in the Netherlands is paying 5 to 10 million for subscriptions every year. And that's quite huge. You can hire 30 to 50 junior professors with that money. Mm, that seems like a lot. Um, these issues were also raised by the people we talked to. So let's go ahead and listen to them. Yeah, my name's uh, Christopher Jackson. I'm a, a geologist based at Imperial College in London. Um, I've been here for about 14 years, um, teaching and researching uh, with a focus on uh, things called sedimentary basins. I saw this talk you gave where you talked about how you got involved with open science through a Twitter discussion. I never used, to, I'm still not on Facebook. <laughs> Um, I use Twitter quite a bit now, and I was kind of relatively new to that in the last two or three years. But it was mainly through that medium that I became aware of issues related to to open science, open access. Um, And I I kind of, yeah, through this kind of discussion we had, or there was a long like thread that went on for a couple of weeks, was a discussion with somebody from... uh, Elsevier, although it could be any sort of major publisher who was kind of defending how they were handling, you know, communication of the scientists' research and how much they were charging for article processing charges and things like that. So I learned a lot via those discussions. And obviously, I kind of got quite um, upset, I guess, where how we were being, was as researchers were being viewed by publishers. Um, but also, you know, to be to be fair to the publishers, I guess I learned a lot from that discussion about how a lot of the kind of power and a lot of a lot of the issues are related to how academics allow themselves to be treated. Um, so I think we have a lot more say in how we publish, and we have a lot more um, control, therefore, over some of the costs associated with publishing. 
So can you please dive a little bit more into that maybe? Yeah, of course. Um, so if we think about it, like if you, if you just wanted to, if you didn't have publishers at all, we could just write, we could just conduct and, and publish really good science in, in myriad ways. We could do it through Diamond OA journals. We could, you know, you could um, just exclusively use preprints. You could um, get informal peer review. So using preprints, getting peer review, which is conducted outside of the journal um, kind of infrastructure. And we'd be no worse scientists for it if our peers read our work deemed it was good and then decided to use it in their own research. We don't need the, we don't necessarily need the conferment of it being published in a, in a, in a journal, really. And I think we, you know, there's the word that's used a lot is prestige, that there's a lot of prestige associated with certain journals, but that's sort of kind of odd that, you know, our value as scientists is not just inherent in what we're doing and how we write it and the conferences we go to and how we conduct ourselves when we're discussing that with other people. It's, it's as much to do with, well, okay, now I need this additional um, conferment that the, the work is good imposed by the journal's title. That's not to say, you know, the, the journal's still, you know, running the peer review process is still valuable because peer review can, can be valuable and I would say typically is, but I'd I guess I'm just not convinced all the time going through a journal-led process is, is needed. Right. So you started something called the Earth Archive. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So um, we started Earth Archive as a preprint server for um, Earth scientists. Um, so preprints are kind of pre-publication um, or pre-journal submission papers, um, manuscripts, which... Um, you can upload to a server, then they're available, they get a DOI, so they're citable, they're, they can be appraised by the community, they can be used by the community. Um, but there was no, and you know, there's archive which has been around for physics and computer sciences and maths for, um, you know, more than 20 years, bioarchive for life sciences. There's a number of different archives that have been springing up over the recent years, and so we, we, we started Earth Archive for Earth Sciences um, as a kind of you say bespoke or a specific venue to host uh, earth science preprints and so the infrastructure is provided by open science framework which comes from the center for open science but this was basically a direct result from your frustration with the traditional publishing system it's it's partly frust it's partly frustration but it's also and you know the the whole idea of using preprint servers and using things like earth archive is not it need not be to replace journal led review the journal-led review process or a way of publishing it's another it's a way of augmenting it and in fact it can make it better so if you're able to get discussions going around a paper on the preprint server and that helps improve the site pre-submission to the journal that's better for everyone that engagement uh, you know how it how it makes the how it makes the paper better so it's not like you know i would never want it to be seen as a kind of challenge or you know, this is our way of completely um, undermining and destroying, you know, academic journals. I see it as being a kind of complementary thing. Now, if academic journals start to become less valuable because the community are happy to 
publish in inverted commas their work on preprint servers and have their science sort of accessed and, and improve the science that way and update versions as you can do on Earth Archive to what would essentially be the final version of record that would be published in the journal anyway. Whether that happens remains to be seen, but that and, and whether that then impacts the publishers in a negative way, again, it remains to be seen. But um, I, I clearly see that the relationship could be symbiotic. You know, it could benefit um, us as researchers and also the the journal publishers. And that's and that's and that's kind of demonstrated by the the views of a lot of journals now. They all accept pre-printed articles that you know you can submit a paper to a journal if it's been pre-printed already. And actually, some journals encourage authors to pre-print their article before submission or during the journal-led um, review process. Um, so they obviously see the value that you know many voices and a broad kind of church of people feeding into a paper can only be a good thing. I, I think as well. I mean, it's the same reason I talk to people in bars after conferences about what I just presented right. because I want to know their opinion. I want to have a you know what they think and how they feel about the work I presented. You want some interaction. Yeah, I want some interaction. I mean, it's, you know, there was a blog I was reading the other day and somebody made the comment, you know, preprints kind of show that you're open for business, right? This idea that we're siloed doing research in a lab or in our room and then suddenly this paper arrives like two years later after you originally submitted or a year later, you know, that's kind of odd, right? Because actually during those two years, and in fact the two years whilst you're conducting the research, you're probably out on a conference circuit presenting work mm -hmm. and engaging in these interactions. So why should that interaction stop when you've kind of put the final full stop at the end of your V1 or V38 draft? Yeah. Um, you know, why not keep that, that interaction going um, whilst the paper makes its way towards um, journal-based public publication? What other advantages does open access publishing have? There's still, I mean, the, the, so the, the issue with preprints, and there is some kind of research and some numbers out there about this, is that, you know, one of the key challenges anyway with journal-led publication is getting enough people to review the papers, right? So there's a lot of material coming out. We've got different parts of the world publishing a lot more than they used to. We've got early career researchers um, kind of publishing earlier. So there's, there's a very kind of swollen um, literature there waiting to be reviewed. And trying to squeeze it all through the journal-led peer review process is very difficult. Um, so preprints are a way of kind of helping with that. So there's a lot of work out there which is probably not getting any attention because the editor of the journal can't find any <laughs> reviewers for mm -hmm. the paper. Um, so why not try and do it on a more peer-to-peer -peer system where you could work your local networks and contacts um, to get them to provide input into your research to help improve it, rather than waiting for um, this kind of slightly constipated journal-led process. So what are the main challenges you encounter with colleagues in trying to introduce these new ideas? You know, in some ways, as academics, as scientists, we're very, very willing and able and keen and this is how we're built is to kind of take advantage of new things new machines new approaches new problems but oddly enough at the same time some things we've got um like the way we publish is quite entrenched it's quite hard to shift the standard way of of of, of writing up and publishing a piece of research and um so that's been the main challenge not just here at imperial college but more generally with preprints has been just trying to convince people that it's a valid and exciting way of actually continuing 
with your science communication. It need not kind of jeopardise your publication in a journal. It need not open you up to having your ideas stolen. You know, there's lots of kind of concerns that people have about it. So these, again, these are not specific to my colleagues here because some of my colleagues here, weirdly enough, who come from more mathematical or physics backgrounds, they're completely down with this because they have known about archive for 20 years. Mm. Um, so it's strange how, you know, you know, I'm sure maths, physics, computer sciences and things that archive draw quite heavily from. I'm sure maybe, you know, when that started up, there was a slow burn to get it going. Likewise, with bioarchive, there's probably scepticism at the start, and quite rightly so, because in those early stages of development of those platforms, there are tweaks, you know, there are, there are, there are cultural shifts that are required, and there are kind of modifications that need to, and we're willing to make to make sure it is the best it can possibly be for the community. Um, so, you know, it's not the finished article, and there's going to be a few bumps and a bit of turbulence as we develop it but that's all good you know there is in our science anyway like we shouldn't be surprised and how do you think initiatives like open archives influence the culture of science it's probably easier to 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 kind of construct something than it is overall to change cultures and practice isn't there because you know there are there are some infrastructure challenges and technological challenges that can be met, but you can sort of, I guess, you can sort of impose your will on the on the on the thing you're coding or the the thing you're trying to make work, and eventually get something which can work and be modified. But actually, trying to say to somebody, okay, you've been doing this for twenty years, thirty years, fifty years, but here's something different and another way of doing things. That's super hard, um, because you're trying to. People, you know, people just don't generally don't often react well to change, mm -hmm. um, and sometimes it's with very good reason because they spot holes in it. But you know that the spotting those holes should be all used as feedback into improving something which is progressive, but actually could be very beneficial to the communities. So this was Christopher Jackson, who mainly talked about the motivation behind the Earth Archives was the costs, and it was built on the open science framework not to exactly bypass the traditional journal system, but as he nicely said, it makes it interactive. So it shows that you're open for business. We put a link to the Earth Archives in our show notes. We'll hear more about open access publishing after the break when we talk to our second guest. And this is the break in which we promote other open science initiatives. Here's a promotion for the national platform Open Science, presented by Wilma van Weesbeek. I have uh, three roles currently. I'm director of the TU Delft Library. I'm the chair of the UKB, Consortium of University Libraries and the Royal Library, National Library. And I'm program manager Open Access at the FASNU, the Association of Dutch Universities. The National Plan Open Science, or NPOS, was created as a result of the Dutch presidency of the European Union in 2016. All member states created a roadmap towards open science. Um, we co-created this plan with 10 public parties uh, and they undersigned the connected open science declaration and they promised to take up the challenges they committed themselves to in the plan and to give an example of who those 10 public parties were. For instance, the Academy of Royal Arts and Sciences was part of it. The funding agency in the Netherlands, NWO, 
and um, the PhD network, PNN, were included. We launched the plan in, in 2017, and the ambition stretched out to 2020. And in the plan, there were four main pillars, and those pillars were um, that we wanted to have full open access to publications in 2020, but also to make uh, research data optimally suitable for reuse. Um, promoting and supporting open science, as well as giving recognition to and rewards for researchers. And, and, and this last pillar is perhaps the most difficult um, thing to, to accomplish. Um, because in, in the more traditional um, world of publications, the reward is being given by publishing in traditional journals with high impact factors. But if we talk about the open science ecosystem, we should um, have an eye for all the elements that make open science happen. And that's not just publishing the paper. So, and I think this is probably the most difficult pillar in the plan to, to realize. Thanks, Wilma van Wezenbeek. If you want to find out more about the national platform Open Science or get involved, go to www.openscience.nl. And here's another message from our fellow travelers who are putting several discussions around Open Science under a magnifying glass in their podcast. My name is Dan Quintana and I'm here with James Heathers. Say hello, James. Hello, James. <laughs> and we are the co-hosts of uh, Everything Hurts. How would you describe our show, James? Uh, Everything Hurts is a podcast broadly focused on science in the biological life and social and medical kind of bent. We're not hard scientists and we're young. We're so incredibly we young. desperately young. So I would say that we have uh, an ECR themed kind of podcast. We answer listener questions. Um, we have guests and generally we have fun. Would you say we were a serious podcast, Daniel? Not really. We, we no. sometimes talk about serious stuff, but we, we were, you know, a bit, of, a bit on the lighthearted side. The lighthearted side or an incredibly rude side, depending on who you ask. <laughs> So if you want to find us, uh, you can search for us in your favorite podcast directory. We're on Twitter at Hertz Podcast. And we're also on Facebook. Just search Everything Hertz Podcast. So check us out. We're back from a break and we're going to listen to our next guest. Uh, who did you talk to, Sandy? I talked to a professor of physics, John Sebastian Coe at the University of Amsterdam. He has started an open access publishing platform completely from scratch. Uh, it's just called SciPost. Physics is quite uh, famous for uh, its preprint practices, while in other communities, preprints have been in use maybe for the past couple of years. The physics community has put preprints online for maybe about 30 years, and everybody knows that. But John Sebastian thinks that the whole publishing system needs an overhaul and just using preprints is not enough, and that's why he has started SciPost. I wanted to ask him, why did you start the SciPost? All right, let's go ahead and listen. To start with, would you be kind and introduce yourself? 
Okay, my name is uh, Jean-Sébastien Co. I'm a professor of uh, theoretical condensed matter at the University of Amsterdam. So I specialize in many body quantum mechanics, uh, things that have to do with quantum magnetism, cold atoms and things. So I try to do some uh, meaningful calculations that uh, are pretty mathematically advanced, but still have some experimental relevance to, you know, real things going on in the labs. You have started a new publishing platform, the SciPost, uh, which to me sounds it has little to do directly with your research. Why did you do that? Um, so that's a very good question. <laughs> um, essentially, it started out of a bit of frustration with the way the industry was operating and uh, the things scientists had to face in order to get their science published. The way the publishing industry. So I used to complain quite a lot about uh, this whole side of. Um, uh, of life as a scientist, you know, the whole edifice of publishing. And at some point, some colleagues just said, look, JS, you know, either you shut up about it or you do something about it. And then I, I looked into it a bit more seriously and um, I looked at um, the possibility indeed of maybe starting some, some initiative to try to do that. Physics is famous in the open science community for archive and the fact that preprints were used there already 20 years before it was fashionable. Preprints for us is a problem that's been solved a long, long, long time ago. And the problems that we face today are typically not related to preprints or no preprints. They go much, uh, much further. So I think although the archive was an early pioneer in, uh, uh, in open science, it certainly uh, perhaps led physicists, among others, to think that they were still ahead of the curve. But when I, when I looked at the whole situation, my conclusion was that physicists were actually um, pretty far from the most innovative things that you have. I, um, I had the occasion to look around quite a lot, and even in fields like uh, biomedical sciences, atmospheric physics, uh, uh, you know, uh, loads of different sciences have w have been way more creative and experimental with open science as we uh, talk about it today than physics has been. So, so maybe in that sense, the archive has also worked against physics in open science by giving the illusion to physicists that they were doing so well, but that's not really the case. It's actually one of the, one of the trigger moments for me um, with, uh, with SciPost and uh, uh, in my own personal history in the recent years as a researcher was a certain moment when um, uh, we had obtained within my group what I think is one of the very, very best results. I mean, certainly in the, in the kind of history of my group, but also in the community within which I'm working. This was really, a, for me, kind of a, a seminal result. And we, uh, of course, it was a very technical result. It was based on some conjectures. It was based on new complicated theories. And we tried to get it into the highest journals. And then uh, it didn't work with the first one. So we tried, uh, we kind of rewrote it for another one. And then, yeah, the theoretical level was a bit too high, not understandable, not very sellable and things. So it didn't work out. So then we tried another third and a third journal. And then, and at some point I got extremely uh, angry because I computed the time that we had spent writing up and rewriting and rephrasing and re-massaging the, uh, the work as compared to the time we had taken to actually execute the research. And we had spent more time trying to sell the research than executing it. And I felt at that point that this had gone completely bonkers because others could not understand what we were doing. We had to waste time on this. And I, I thought, never again. 
Yeah, it's really, um, I, I, I do not care about journals as editorial policies like that. If I have good science, I will write it up like that. And if people don't, you know, per se understand it or feel that it fits with their particular, you know, objectives for that journal, then this is, this is, this should not be a block. So at that point, I thought, really, scientists are better served by themselves. So let's just let's just do it because once again it's not rocket science. You can just do it. The infrastructure is not complicated to build. So let's just build it. Let's just do it. But how do you define quality of a paper that you have just received? It's essentially uh, uh, all left to our editorial college. So uh, the idea is that we we assemble this uh, college of uh, specialists. Uh, so at the moment we have approximately 60, but we want to scale it up to about 200 until the end of this year uh, for all fields of physics. And essentially all the editorial decisions, all the evaluations uh, uh, happen through the college. So uh, quality is exclusively assessed by um, you know, professionally active specialists in the field. Um, the, uh, the assessment sometimes is, is very, very difficult, of course, because you might not be able to uh, assess uh, certainly the, the importance of the work. Correctness is easier to assess. Um, but uh, the editorial college is the, the, the body within Cypost that actually takes care of that. So the fellows that we have, when they take charge of a submission, they consult, of course, uh, external referees. So they explicitly invite a number of referees to evaluate the papers. Then they look at the papers themselves. Sometimes some contributors that we have also provide some comments or even contributed reports on, on the papers. So we, we rely very, very much on the community in that sense to uh, to get the evaluation going. Now you say that you ask more people and you do it more openly. So that's probably makes the process more transparent and hopefully more fair. But uh, how come that the other journals also don't do that? Or what happened? Is it because of matter of scale there? So um, again, in terms of the, the editorial procedures, this is a place where we really saw a big opportunity. Uh, so so uh, we, uh, um, we thought that uh, although other fields of science have already experimented with open refereeing, this is something which was almost non-existent in, uh, in physics with you know, less than a handful of exceptions. Um, and certainly nobody had tried to leverage this openness for, for quality. So this was really a case where um, it was needed in physics. And that's also uh, uh, an exemplification of uh, the fact that physics was not innovative at all, because there are other fields of science that have been running open refereeing ever since around the year 2000, and that's a long time ago. But, uh, now, Archive has now 12,000 submissions a month. That was the record. If I do the calculation, then you need, I don't know, some like 20,000 uh, or more fellow in the college to handle all of those. How are you going to scale up? Well, so if we, uh, if our task was to handle all the submissions at the archive, then of course uh, we'd uh, we'd have an issue. So the way the way I think about it is when I think of a particular publication. Well, okay, there are, there are three things that need to occur. First of all, the authors have to. Uh, write the paper. Uh, let's call that uh, uh, maybe a thousand units of work. Okay, uh, and now uh, we have another class of people who need to intervene on the paper. Those are the referees. 
while okay it's difficult to estimate standardly what the uh, amount of work refereeing is but i would say it's probably something close to two orders of magnitude less than authoring the paper maybe a bit more if it's a 50th or a 25th i don't know but i would expect the authors to indeed if you count everything maybe to have spent a hundred times more work than the referee has uh, but the referee uh, uh, still has to do a lot of work. It takes a long time to read a paper properly, to read uh, literature on the side, to think about it, to draft a good report. So, fine, let's call this 10 units of work. Okay? Um, but then what's left, it's the editorial workflow. Okay, so what's the, uh, what's the editorial workflow? Well, you need somebody to uh, certainly invite referees, uh, maybe uh, read through the referee reports, uh, think about, uh, read through the paper, read through the referee reports, think about it a bit, and then uh, uh, formulate a recommendation. Of course, the, the, the fellows who do it extremely professionally, then it's like also 10 units of work to, to get it done. They don't have to write the report, that's the difference, but they still have to write a recommendation. So I don't know, maybe we call that like five units uh, or something. Um, so, uh, so if we are able to author 12,000 new uh, preprints per month uh, for the archive as a community, then we are certainly mathematically in position to referee and to edit, if you want to run the editorial workflow on all those papers, if we leverage the power of the community. And that's what SciPost intends to do. Yeah? So we don't have to, we don't want to have this uh, closed house where suddenly we're overwhelmed with, uh, with all of these things. Um, uh, we will grow with adoptance, and our pool for growth is simply the community as a whole. So, but before I really wanted to ask this question. So, a lot of decisions. Now, I need a bit of introduction. A lot of decisions of where to submit work is done be based on the reputation of the journals, for many bad and good reasons. And many good scientists at your standards, also people from your college, submit to high impact factor journals because of their PhD students who want to get a job, because of themselves who have to defend a grant, and the people who are in the grant and hiring committees are not necessarily the expert in their field, so not everybody knows the name of every journal even. The brands are much more famous, so a lot of people tell me that, yes, I need a nature, or nature satellites, or whatever that comes from that corner of the world, because uh yeah that's where uh my committee members understands and that's how i think these journals have tapped to in this uh, uh aspect of the evaluation in science and that's why you get so many satellites expanding and you get the brands uh coming up how to break this circle of committee members and evaluation uh, committee members understanding the quality and not the journal name. People have to give us the time to obtain the reputation that we do want to achieve. Um, SciPost has been publishing only since September 2016. We are competing against journals that have been around for over 150 years. Uh, so uh, what I would say is, uh, you know, give us five years and then see where we are. And I think you'll be impressed by the breadth of material we will have been able to attract. Um, so um, in terms of the journal reputation within the community, then uh, I think there are... So 
one of the things which I always love to, uh, to, to state is the following observation. I have great respect for my colleagues. I think they're wonderful people, super clever, super imaginative, good-hearted, good, good in, uh, intentions, morals typically irreproachable. Uh, uh, they write beautiful things. They have beautiful ideas. They, they really, you know, they're inspiring at so many levels. So why is it that they are so stupid at using antiquated measures with half-hearted attempts at pseudo-rational evaluations like impact factor, H-index, and all this patent nonsense? It is a common agreement within scientists that this is absolutely not the way you would um, evaluate your own research. Um, it is absolutely certain that no scientist has such low-quality protocols as things like impact factor and H-index. So why is it that scientists who are such yeah, morally, uh, if you want, irreproachable creatures and extremely bright, imaginative things, how is it that this group of people still uses these methods? It is complete... Yeah, I, I, I'm not saying that these things don't have any information. Of course, the impact factor is an interesting measure. Of course, the H-index is an interesting simplification of a measure. But there are many more. One can think of many dozens of indices. One can think of many... Uh, Your answer is, how is it that scientists act like this? I think it is because of the direct consequence on the personal lives of scientists of these particular things. Now, if you ask me what I think of the observation that I can make of the direct consequence on one's career or another... I think we are bordering on uh, a criminal behavior in the way we evaluate those, uh, those people and the way these evaluations really perhaps inflate or destroy careers of scientists. And this is really something which I think has happened for many, many different reasons. You know, it's, uh, it's become a bit of a, uh, a, a, bit of a catwalk uh, publishing. So, so you've got fashions, you've got things that have high impact and therefore you go for this and this and that. But let's be honest, let's take a step back. On our deathbeds, when we think of the good science that we will have performed, will we remember those moments when we dressed up our science in a particular way so it went somewhere? Or will we think, I oh, know, you know what? There was that idea. There was that particular really charming little piece of insight that I, I failed to publish in the big things, but, but it was there. And 10 years later, one of my colleagues, you know, uh, he said, hey, you know what? Yeah, that idea you had there, yeah, maybe that's the most beautiful thing you ever did. Yeah? But you never got recognition for that. Okay. You mentioned journals which are 100 years, but there are also journals which are two years and they suddenly get magic impact factors of 20 above, and they are now publishing 5,000, 10,000 a year, and open access, which the same publishing system you have. And people submit, and these are respectable scientists who submit to these articles. Do you think that there would be a reform in the behavior of people in submitting to platforms like SIPOS or community-driven journals instead of the other uh, brand-developed uh, publishers if there is no change in the other side of the behavior, the hiring, the grant allocation, the, the allocation of resources, principle. So I think the, uh, the behavior and the grant giving and fellowship giving will be longer term. I think this is going to go the following route. At some point, people will recognize indeed that uh, SciPost has like really high quality and then it'll start counting as brownie points. 
Now, in terms of uh, other open access things, there is one market difference, which is our business model. And I think uh, uh, one of the great risks of the current transition to open access is essentially the, the hijacking of open access for the implementation of a new business model based on article processing charges or the equivalent, you know, backdoor uh, uh, payments from universities to publishers without the scientists being involved in that. Big deal negotiations where suddenly scientists are completely decoupled. And I get extremely irritated by what I see in the world where once again there's a, there's a big deal. Even at my university here, you get this announcement once in a while that, oh, from now on, um, scientists of... Uh, University X can publish in all those journals here free of charge. This is a lie. It is not free of charge. It, the correct statement is that the, uh, uh, the publisher is licensed to send an invoice for a number which is not agreed upon for the coming, uh, uh, more than the, uh, the coming little period, um, uh, uh, which will be paid without question by the university. So these, uh, these big deals, essentially, they provide enormous publicity for the publishers who do end up with this backdoor invoice pump of money from the institutions to their coffers. And uh, things like SciPost, we don't get such big announcements because, no, there's no need for a big deal with SciPost. We don't charge article processing charges. We do not charge our authors. We expect to be able to survive from donations from the institutions that benefit from our activities. But this is a really hard sell. Uh, the, the, the difficulty here is that because of the way the open access transition is being, is being run, because of the way the negotiations are being done with the current publishers, scientists are once again going to be like fooled into thinking that um, uh, uh, things have been solved and it's now all free. In fact, one of my, my favorite little side hobbies is to um, uh, take editors for certain journals uh, uh, that are you know, possibly open access journals and then check with these editors whether they understand the business model of the organization that they work for. And it is quite shocking to see up to what point they are either uh, kept in the dark uh, of this uh, or uninterested or illusioned into thinking that it's something else. And then, you know, there's a great lack of understanding on the part of the scientists involved in these things of what they are dealing with. And I think if this understanding was, uh, uh, was improved, things would transition much faster. But of course, you know, there are interests in not m making these, uh, these changes. So that's where I view SciPost really as the, the, the black sheep in the whole party. Uh, yes, we do want to rock the cage of the business of scientific publishing quite a lot because uh, we scientists, we, we, care, we care about the science. We care about the quality of the product. Uh, of the product. We care about the way we are treated. We care about the consequences that it has on us, on our young people, uh, on everything. Um, so, so yes, we do feel entitled in having a look. And if we're not happy with what we see, writing a referee report, asking for changes and expecting them to be implemented. And sometimes the best way to implement these changes is just implement them yourself, as an example. And that's the kind of drive behind it. This is my last question. I know that I went over time. Sorry. My last question is a bit personal, but I'm also in a similar situation now. You mentioned initially your colleague said to you that, you know, JS, stop uh, complaining or do something. And now you're doing something. It takes a lot of your time, a lot of your attention. You're doing it very passionately. It's very completely clear and 
beautiful to, to, to observe. But uh, what's the perception of your colleagues about your side activity, which has become so bold? Don't they think, well, I don't say, I don't want to make any statements like that. Do they look at you and say, oh, JS, stop doing these other things, go back to your physics now? Or uh, your immediate colleagues, do they take you now at the same time serious physicists while you're doing all these side jobs? So I make a, a, an extremely explicit point that I am still exactly the same person that, uh, that I was before. I'm still exactly the same scientist. The only difference is that, uh, so, so if in the past I was working my 70 hours, then of course my 70 hours was mostly research and then the side teaching and uh, admin. Now it's perhaps a little bit more like 45 hours on my, uh, uh, my normal job and then uh, you know, 30 hours for, uh, for side post. Uh, I, I think uh, even for SciPost's sake, uh, I want to make a point that I am a professionally active scientist. And in that sense also, uh, for me, uh, just receiving the, uh, the ERC Advanced recently kind of helped underline that point. Yeah, It helped put my feet on the ground and say, no, 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 no. I am not a publisher. I, I will never be a publisher. I might be running a whole publishing thing on the side, but this is not my job. I am a professionally active scientist. That's what I do. That's what I want to keep on doing. And the first occasion I've got, I will redirect my extra forces towards this. Yeah, it's, it's completely clear. Um, so, so of course, people uh, people get worried about the amount of work that I that I do uh, when I crack jokes about all the missed hours of sleep that uh, that I have and things. They kind of shake their heads and they really genuinely think I will collapse at some point in the corridor, which might still occur. Who knows? But um, uh, but I don't think anybody within the the circle of people I interact with uh, really think that I've kind of given up on the on the science. This is really not the case. Definitely, and with this passion, I'm sure it will go a long way. Thank you very much. You just heard from John Sebastian Coe. You can read more about uh, his opinion on his blog, uh, the link to which we will put on the show notes. Uh, what I find interesting and common in the both interviews with these senior researchers is that both think the publishing and publications are just too important uh, for the academics to lose control. So they have started these platforms to give the control of the publishing system back to the academics because that's the main currency and we need to be in charge. But there is still a challenge. Yes, the challenge is that it's easier to build the system than to change the culture at home. And make the academics really use these platforms. Thanks for listening to the Road to Open Science podcast, brought to you by the Utrecht Young Academy in collaboration with the University Library and the Open Science Task Force at Utrecht University. You can find all the show notes on the Open Science Community Portal at openscience-utrecht.com. Here you can also find all our previous episodes and links to our feeds on SoundCloud, iTunes and Stitcher. Our Twitter handle is at r2ospodcast with a numeric 2. Follow us on Twitter to stay up to date. We would like to thank Christopher Jackson and Jean-Sebastien Coe for their contributions 
en credit Jeroen Bosman en Bianca Kramer voor their research attribution. Marisa Mol is our production assistant. This episode was produced by Stanley Fias and me, Lieven Heremans, with editing help from Andy Clark. See you after summer break. So, Lieven, you're leaving us, right? Yeah, uh, like a true academic, I'm writing grants. Oh, what are your plans? Well, it's not an academic grant. It's actually a grant for funds to organize a podcast festival. We will miss you on the road to open science, but I'm sure on the other roads, you will have a lot of fun. Yeah, you can also uh, hear me soon in the Cineville podcast, which I'm hosting. Looking forward to it. Thank you, Lieven. Thanks for taking me on this trip. Sure, it was a pleasure.